Uh, well, let's see. Uh, Turkey uh, is lowering their rates. That Erdogan, he's so cray. I actually spoke with a Turkish Bitcoiner. He explained it. Turkish banks, they're lending out at 20%, even though inflation is higher, because they get some sort of subsidy on loans from the central bank. Ah, nice setup. That's kind of interesting because there's a academic named Richard Werner, another unfortunate casualty of social media. He's been uh, posting a lot of really crazy pro-Russian stuff lately. But before he went off the deep end, he wrote this book called Princes of the Yen in the 90s, and he coined the term quantitative easing. He was very early to the financial dead end and understanding why growth is going to go low in the world in a state of financial repression. And what he identifies is that basically we need bank lending for real economic activity to happen, and even speculative activity. All economic growth, whether it's financial ponzonomics, or building real things requires some form of lending. And in Japan in the late 70s and 80s, the central bank told banks to lend. They had this thing called window guidance, which was basically the central bank saying, we really want you, Bank One, to lend at least $100 million in this sector this year. And banks would go ahead and do that because that was their regulator. You have to do what they say. And that created a booming economy. But obviously, there was a lot of misallocation of capital and it blew up in 1989. So Turkey, that probably isn't going to end well. No, no, no. You just need to centrally manage it more. What you got to do is you got to work through all your finance ministers. And if they don't agree with your great economic vision, you just fire them and hire the right one until you get the right economic minister in there who agrees with Erdogan's grand vision. You employ more central management. You incentivize the banks to loan out when inflation is high. You lower the rates a little bit. You get things cooking. I I think it's going to work out great. What could go wrong? Frankly, there isn't a central banker or finance minister who is going to really sign on to Erdogan's plan because he gave the job to his son-in-law a few years ago and even his (laughs) son-in-law went against him. No. Yeah, that actually happened. But... From what I gather, there's actually a pretty high likelihood that Erdogan gets voted out of office at some point in the next couple of years. And so what he's doing is the inflationary political playbook, which is pump the economy during an incumbent election and you won't get voted out. And he's just been running with that for like, I don't know, a decade now, a long time. And now it may actually cost him an election in the future, but you have to figure that's going to be hard for the people because as much as it's a needed medicine, somebody comes in and they make a big pivot, a big change in the economic structure, people are going to feel that. The car is uh, on the highway going very fast and there aren't really brakes. And the only way to stop it is to kind of swerve and flip it over. No one wants to do that politically because it ends your career. And I think that that's kind of a metaphor for most countries in the world. We're in a economic spiral and there's no solution other than catastrophe because there's so much debt in the economy. There's so much leverage. There's so many clearly overpriced assets. I mean, housing prices are crazy. And the only reason that houses can be so expensive is because they're being financialized because the monetary system isn't good for storing value anymore. And so that value is flowing into houses. At the same time, these housing prices are highly volatile. They're very dependent on the last sale. And so 
if you don't have new buyers showing up and the demand for buyers and the demand to sell gets a little unaligned, these prices can go in the opposite direction. And anecdotally, we have the baby boomers retiring in the US very soon, and that's going to very likely increase the supply of houses in the US that are for sale. And in other countries like Australia or Canada that have had really insane housing markets, you're reaching the point where you literally just don't have buyers. Australia and Canada ran out of domestic buyers about five years ago. Well, how did they continue selling overpriced houses? Well, they imported buyer demand from China because there were a lot of people with a lot of money in China and they just wanted to get it out and maybe get a passport in the process. That money flowed into these foreign real estate markets and pumped that bubble higher. But no money's coming out of China these days. Their economy's bad. Everyone's economy's bad. And inflation is kind of eating into the household budgets of anybody who's thinking about buying a house. And And the cost of a mortgage is going up because the central banks are trying to respond to inflation by raising rates, which is increasing the cost of a mortgage. Pumping real estate prices is actually kind of a good strategy politically because homeowners tend to vote. So you're making them richer. They like that. Makes them feel good. Makes them vote for the incumbent politician. At the same time, I think people really hate it when their housing prices fall. So it's going to be a tough time. I don't see easy political options. I see a lot of hard political options. Right. The goal is going to be, when you look at all the different Western economies and the world economies in general, the goal is going to be the one that's just not the most screwed up. You just want to be kind of like the least screwed up of the whole bunch, that's going to be like considered success. But I don't think that voters will forgive you. I think that any real decrease in net worth or lifestyle is going to come out in the polls against the incumbent party. So it's going to be a rough time for incumbents. And it'll probably mean, in my view, slightly crazier politics going forward, because a lot of challengers are a populace who may or may not live in the same reality as a lot of other people. I mean, some of the populists are right. At the same time, there's also a lot of crazies. And that's kind of a theme in times of economic dislocation. You get extreme politics. The other thing that we are seeing for a lot of these politicians, like the one that's currently in the White House, things have been pretty good for the last 47, 50 years for that class, right? And so they have completely lost touch with the average citizen. And I think that's why populist politicians do so well in this time, because what they're really doing is connecting with the pain of the people in a way that's actually genuine comparatively to the other politicians that maybe have been in D.C. for 47 years and just have always lived life this way. It's always been this way. There's always been a central bank and it's always been great for America. We've had the reserve currency. Let's go, everybody. And they have kind of lived in an ivory tower. And so I think that disconnect also creates anger during these sort of economic downturns because people are hurting and the politicians are telling them, hey, you're doing better than ever. Inflation is zero percent. This is the Bitcoin Dad Pod recorded on Friday, August 19th, 2022. I'm your Bitcoin Dad, and I'm here as always with me. Hello, everybody. Chris here. Should I put my hat back on? No, no. I like no hats. Let's just mess our hair up. I will carefully put my top hat on the hat stand. On today's episode, we will discuss the deepening Eurozone crisis. We'll briefly mention Craig Wright losing his suit against Hoddle Knot. No damages to Craig Wright's reputation have to be paid, but it was still an expensive process for Hoddlenot. In economics, we have a very interesting article on the silent depression, which I think gives voice to the sense that the last 10 years have been very hard economically, but this hasn't been reflected in official narratives, in my opinion. So I think that's a really interesting take. 
In tokenomics, we are going to share a long-form piece about the Three Arrows Capital founders. Helium, the Wi-Fi tokenomics scam, is acquiring startups and still pretending to not be a total dumpster fire. And then we have a juicy Twitter battle where Vitalik suggested that institutional Ethereum stakers who blacklist addresses, perhaps due to OFAC sanctions, would be slashed. And Brian Armstrong, CEO of Coinbase, said, yeah, we would totally shut down our incredibly profitable staking business instead of complying with sanctions. We'll discuss whether or not that is a serious statement or completely ridiculous. Then in Bitcoin education, we have a really cool article by Bitcoin core maintainer Gloria Zhao called Mapping the Bitcoin Peer-to-Peer Network. We'll probably learn a lot in that article. Then we've got feedback and boosts. Shall we take a vacation to sunny Southern Europe, Chris? To the Eurozone, the show begins this week. I like your note in the doc. It actually completely sums up my thoughts. The situation over there is getting so bad and so dire that even Politico has noticed it. I feel like Politico is one of these very internally focused, almost inside baseball type American political publications. It's like the DC gossip rag. The Hill. Insiders read those publications and it's almost more about the game of politics than what's actually happening. It's kind of like how sports writers write about a game. They write about politics. Politico has noticed, you know, after 20 years, I guess, of uh, missing the point, that there's basically been a massive economic divergence between Southern European economies, think Italy, think Greece, and Northern European economies, which is basically exemplified by Germany. Germany is a exporting nation. They run a current account surplus, which means they export more than they import, and they've attracted a lot of investment. Germany is is relatively economically stable. They're the economic powerhouse of Europe. And Southern Europe is kind of a basket case with pretty volatile politics. I think we mentioned in a previous episode that 50% of the parties in the current Italian runoff elections are either fascist or post-fascist, which I think means fascist and they're all Eurosceptic. And so you're going to bail out a government that actually at least 50% wants to leave the EU. That seems very complicated. I think the signal must have been this little bond system they came up with that we covered on the show. That must have been the signal, right? Anti-fragmentation tool? Yeah, was that it? That sounds like it. Sounds like it's something for like a hard drive. <laughs> You got to defragment your Eurozone hard drive. I wonder if that wasn't, though, the signal to a lot of these traditional Western outlets that, wait a minute, now something's going on over here. This article talks about how Italian government debt, the rate of this government debt is spiking. Investors are asking to be compensated for Italian political risk with a higher interest rate and how this is the fragmentation that breaks up the Eurozone because the Eurozone ideally should have every government's debt trading at the same rate. Now, fun fact. Fact, I learned this the other day. In the euro economy, the number one repo collateral is actually Italian government debt. Just to explain, repo is a repurchase agreement. It's this interesting financial system.
system where I've got some Italian government debt, but I need cash for something and I'm a financial institution. So I'll lend you a billion dollars of Italian government debt overnight with the agreement that you give me cash, but then I'll buy it back in 24 hours. It seems very odd, but this is literally how the financial system works. Repo is a huge part of the functioning of modern capital markets. And the majority of repo in the EU is Italian government debt. What? Why would you use such shaky, uncertain debt? Well, it's because there's nothing else to be had. Basically, Germany and France doesn't produce enough debt to fund repo with kind of quote unquote safe government debt. And as a result, you're stuck with Italian government debt. And so there are a lot of holders of Italian government debt that don't really want it. They're just using it because it's like the fuel for repo transactions. There's an interesting reflexivity in this system because the moment that they can't use it for repo transactions, they're going to dump it all at any price. When you sell a bunch of bonds and the price falls, this actually makes the effective interest rate rise. And so you could see spikes in this interest rate really, really suddenly. I don't see how a central bank can really manage that because it seems very volatile. Yeah, and your point's well made too. Politico is noticing that this is becoming a big concern for investors, so they're going to want higher yields to help cover their nut on this, and that's not going to be sustainable either. When we talk about this stuff, I always think, okay, well, what, a month, two months? But it could still be years. They, It's incredible that because of the size of these economies and because of the speed at which these banks work at, it's hard to really know how long it could take for these things to actually all come to a head. What it feels like is a lot of these things are developing. They're all ticking time bombs. We don't know exactly what the timer is set for, but there's a lot of these headwinds out there. We see it in all the different economies right now, and <laughs> just a few of these all hit at once. You know, energy, food crisis, and you know, an economic collapse or supply chain goes down. Like if just one or two of these develop at the same time, we have ourselves an emergency situation. But I think the nature of crises is that everything happens at once. So that should probably be our base case. Now I want to totally change gears and bring you to the pedantic world of. British libel suits. Are you ready? Oh, so ready. There's a long descriptive article in Bitcoin Magazine about the Wright versus Hoddle-Knot lawsuits. Craig Wright is a Australian man who has claimed to be Satoshi Nakamoto. He attempted to demonstrate this in a live signing session in, I think, 2016, where he basically used software that no one else verified to sign messages with Satoshi Satoshi's keys. And then when the veracity of this signing session was questioned, he refused to ever sign anything ever again that could be independently verified. So we'll let everyone make their own decisions about the legitimacy of Craig Wright's claims to be Satoshi Nakamoto. And the reason we are doing that is because if you libel Craig Wright, he will sue you in UK court and attempt to bankrupt you. That's his strategy. And UK libel law is very punitive for people making negative statements. They have to prove that these statements are true. And that's very expensive from a legal perspective. So Hoddlenot is one such person that's been hit with a libel notice. And this article is a long rundown of the history of the two court cases between Hoddlenot and Craig Wright. Yeah, the really unfortunate thing is, is even when Hoddlenot essentially wins, is my understanding, right? Or I guess isn't held liable. He still ends up forking over a fortune just to cover this thing, just like Peter will as well. They're going to pay a fortune in legal fees. And so even if Craig doesn't win the case, he still financially devastates that person, which is going to make them struggle for years. 
Well, I don't know what Hoddle Knot's situation is, but UK libel law is really broken. It's designed to allow aristocrats to punish uppity bourgeois or peasants who malign them, quote unquote. So UK libel law is the playground of large, well-pocketed entities that want to use the court system to silence legitimate criticism. As a result, Craig is abusing this system to go after people who contradict his dubious claims. Why is this important? Well, this is actually an attack on Bitcoin, because as we'll find out in an interview I recorded with the Dr. Bitcoin pod team, Craig Wright has a long-term plan. He wants to legally force exchanges to list his altcoin, Bitcoin Satoshi Vision, as Bitcoin. He wants to do this kind of like marketing scam swaparoo and attract new inflows that wanted to go into Bitcoin, but force them to go into his scam coin by forcing exchanges to like rebrand Bitcoin as Bitcoin Core or something else. To do this, he kind of needs to prove he's Satoshi so that he can claim copyright on Bitcoin and the white paper. There's a lot of money riding on this and it's a legal attack on Bitcoin. So it's important that Craig Wright be revealed as someone who cannot substantiate their claims. And he has a long history of falsifying documents. It's frankly insane, in my view, that his long history of document falsification hasn't resulted in serious penalties. But he sues people in civil court. So in civil court, there's no jail time. It's just money. And he just seems pretty emboldened to go after people legally. And unfortunately, it's something we kind of have to watch out for. You know, it's a silly strategy because he's essentially running out the clock. I was thinking about this because I remember when old Craig first came on the scene and I thought to myself, oh, this is our first of the Satoshi claimers. And we have seen some, specifically right around when Craig Wright came around, we were seeing several people claim it. But I figured we would see more and more advanced characters come along who seem even more possibly like they could be Satoshi Nakamoto because who, you know, who wouldn't want to take that opportunity on just possibly, you know, get that. I thought that's going to happen for sure. And so I kept waiting in the back of my mind. I kept waiting for a better fake Satoshi. And so I've just been kind of writing Craig off. But now I've realized that window of opportunity is closing because there's only going to be so long where you could conceivably be the correct age to be Satoshi Nakamoto. You know, in another decade, nobody's going to be able to claim that unless they're, you know, much older. And it's going to be less and less likely that somebody's being taken seriously. Craig is instead of uh, instead of having epic legal wins where he's getting closer and closer to being able to sue anyone who links to the white paper. He's doing these embarrassing liable suits where he just lost two in a row and the whole community sits back and laughs at him. And it's just such a failed strategy. And this is what he's spending his time doing because this window of opportunity won't be open forever. That's an interesting point. I hadn't really thought about the age problem that basically everyone's aging out of being a compelling Satoshi candidate. The thing is, it's very easy to prove that you're a Satoshi Nakamoto. Right. Satoshi has some known PGP public keys out there. You just have to sign a message with the corresponding private key and you're Satoshi. You could just take the first Bitcoin block, which we know that Satoshi mined because he embedded that uh, Times article in the, I think in the Coinbase transaction somehow, maybe Opraturn. I'm not sure how he did it. He linked the first Bitcoin block to a British newspaper headline. Yeah, the Guardian, was it? Chancellor on the brink of second bailout for banks. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. 
Right. And then you sign a message with that block's private key, and we know you're Satoshi. So it's incredibly easy to prove you're Satoshi. You don't have to do it in person. It doesn't have to be a big deal. But Craig can't do that. So he has to result to pretending that PGP doesn't work, that Bitcoin transactions are not final because they haven't been approved by a court. I mean, he says a lot of really silly things that the real Satoshi would never say because they're preposterous. At the same time, you know, this is a way to attack developers and to suppress people is to legally threaten them. And I think we see a similar kind of approach with OFAC. It's frustrating, it's pedantic, it's weird, but people like Arthur Van Pelt and Mark from the Dr. Bitcoin pod and the author of this Bitcoin magazine article, Elsa Waldorf, they're doing something pretty important because the way that you debunk liars and cheats is you very carefully evaluate everything they've said and done and you put it in the context of their greater story. And that's a lot of work. It requires raking through a lot of money. But because of this work, we can see clearly that Craig is a very poor Satoshi candidate. It's almost hard to imagine a worse candidate for Satoshi, given the things he's said and done. And so we don't have to take him seriously, and we know to watch out for him. But if this work hadn't been done, you know, a lot of people think that Craig's an information security expert. He has a lot of PhDs from online diploma mills. If you don't look too carefully, maybe he looks legitimate. Yeah, and maybe if you're not technically literate, especially in Bitcoin, maybe having a conversation with him, he seems rather convincing because there are some things that he's aware of. And of course, he's involved in his altcoin thing. In my opinion, really, it's actually not funny. I mean, he's kind of a laughable character, but it's not funny because he is also going after actual Bitcoin developers. That has created a discouraging environment around participating in Bitcoin Core. It's required folks like Jack Dorsey to set up legal funds to help contribute money to defend these developers who are just developing on Bitcoin and write claims that they're violating his copyright. That kind of stuff isn't funny. And it's a drag on Bitcoin's development. It's a drag on Bitcoin. It's an attack on Bitcoin. And I hope that that isn't like going to be what his focus is. I hope he keeps going on with these silly liable suits because he looks like a clown. I feel bad for the people he goes after, but his public image gets knocked down every single time he does it. That segues nicely into our economics section and Emil Kalinowski's article on the silent depression. What were your thoughts reading this, Chris? I like this article a lot. I think this might be my favorite link in the notes this week. It really clicked with me because not only does it put things into perspective data wise, but it adds kind of some language to thoughts that I've had for a long time. Something I've struggled with is it feels like the U.S. economy operates on ignorance. Everybody on Wall Street knows that the CPI number is really kind of been manufactured over the years to kind of reflect the most positive results they can out of the economy. And we know we're doing the same for the unemployment market. I know so many people who have just dropped off the map for unemployment. You know, if you go by the official number, unemployment's doing great. And that's just one of thousands of data points that are kind of manufactured. But yet, since we're all just kind of operating that we agree with with these numbers, the market proceeds. The reality out there in the country is different. When I road trip, I see a totally different United States than what I see on CNN, what I see politicians talking about. And I felt like this article put real words to it and took it all the way back to like 2008 and said it's really for a lot of people, it's been a depression 
since then. And he makes some comparative numbers to 1919 and 1920 and 1921. Kind of says how like all these things have kind of happened just like they have back then. But the only difference is this time we're not talking about it. And that's how I feel in a big way. First of all, this is actually an article from 2020, but I think it's just as relevant today. What Emil's doing with quite a funny style is pointing out that if we look over a century, growth in the United States has been well below trend for 14 years now, since essentially 2008, for sure. And frankly, maybe even as far back as 2000. And what Emil does is he looks at the the jobs report, the BLS non-farm payroll report, where they talk about how many jobs have been added to the economy. And he points out that in this uh, 2019 November report, the White House is saying, we have a blockbuster report. We've added 266,000 jobs. Wow, so great. And then Emil looks back and says, if we look over 100 years, this is a really bad number. In fact, 266,000 is an average number in the 90s, but we consider it a blockbuster number today. Why? Because jobs creation is trending downwards. And so he uses some pretty simple data to demonstrate that the US, and I think the world, has been in a, a silent recession for 14 years. And it's really interesting how there's no political desire to highlight this fact, because I think that means that we need political and social change, and incumbents don't like that. So it's an interesting read, quite mind-opening, and it was written by someone who, rather than attending the regular Ivy League and Oxford universities that provide most of our economics graduates, Emil is a graduate of Arizona State University, winner of the designation Party School of the Year of the 1990s. Well, it's well-written, and it's well-researched. The charts and the data are in here. The numbers are in here. Back in 2000, the number that we'd want for like a blockbuster would be 433,000 jobs. We want somewhere between 317,000 and 433,000. And we're celebrating 266,000, 200,000. If that just recently happened, just this year, we just recently had like this quote, blockbuster jobs report. It was good. It was also a lot of people taking a second job, which is another negative data point. But it wasn't 400,000 good. No, no. And one has to wonder, what would it take to get there? Because, I mean, there's a lot of job openings, so... Might take a lot of immigration, frankly. Perhaps. Maybe that's what we're seeing right now. It's a great read, easy to understand. It puts words to stuff that you've probably noticed. I like the way he writes this. The U.S. economy has been in suspended animation for 12 years. And that's so true. What we've had is a lot of central management. We've had a lot of the Cantelian effect. But the people out there in the flyover states, they've been living in a depression since 2008. And probably, I think, since 2000, really, since the dot-com burst. But really since 2008, for sure. That was definitely my impression working in a company a while back with a lot of employees in the middle America flyover state area. These people had been working for a company that had been in a cost-cutting mode for 20 years, ever since 2000. And It was interesting because they'd actually done some organizational things to make it hard to fire people. They'd removed some automated processes and added manual checks and these odd kind of circular flows of work that made it very difficult to slim the department down because you'd break a critical process. And when I saw that, I thought, oh, wow, this is job protection. This is desperate. I don't think anyone wants to work in a job where your purpose is kind of artificial and it's like intentionally inefficient. That doesn't feel good. At the same time, my sense was maybe there's not another job ever if they don't get this one. It was an odd realization. And I think that kind of plays into this article and what it's describing. It really depends 
depends on where you live. You're living in a completely different economic reality. Our country and the rest of the world is like a Star Trek Voyager episode where Voyager gets split into multiple different realities. That's what's happening here with our economics. There are places in Wyoming I visited that even just six years ago had more life to them. And uh, when I visited them last year, it was like a freaking ghost town. The last store that remained open was a JC Penny of all things. There's a JCPenney open. And that's where people went to meet up. So I was meeting up with some listeners like, well, where do we want to meet up? How about the JCPenney? I'm like, what? And by the time I got to town, I realized that's why. Because <laughs> that's what's open. And that's it. <laughs> that and the gas station. That's rough. Now, it's interesting. You said Voyager episode and split realities. Are you thinking about that episode where they encounter the planet that exploded and then reality fractures and the captain ends up back in time? Yeah. But then they try to save her and that creates the explosion. Yeah, that's a good one. And there's that, I can't remember if this is the same one where there's one also where the ship gets all split up into different different time zones. And then so Janeway visits like major moments of the show's history. Like when Seven came on board, like that's a fun one too. Those like time cop episodes. Yeah. With Captain Braxton. And then Seven of Nine has to travel through time and they keep accidentally killing her by pulling her out of time too fast or something. Yeah, they always have that one character, like Worf. Worf always gets beat up. We won't talk about Tucker. I just remember that one where the young boy kicks over a planter on an alien world where you get a poison injection if you break any rule. Yeah, that was uh, Wesley on TNG. Right, and then he showed up in The Big Bang Theory as a total psychopath. Oh. But lovable. I can see him playing that. He's got those wild eyes. Okay, quite a digression. But maybe sets the scene for the beginning of our tokenomics section, which I almost felt like we didn't want to add this week. We almost resolved to not talk about all this nonsense, but then we had to. There's a long form piece from New York Magazine about Kyle Davies and Suzu of 3AC. I don't know if it's important reading, but it definitely adds a bunch of context around them. This article is very kind of reportery in that it doesn't get so much into the mechanics of how they vaporized trillions of dollars with the 3AC breakdown. But what it gets at is the history of the characters involved. So if you're interested in that history, you want to know about the guys behind it, or you want to share this with a family member who maybe likes that kind of thing, it's definitely an interesting read. And I hadn't realized that these guys came out of Andover, which is probably the most elite prep school in the United States. It definitely has a, a kind of crypto bro, legacy finance insider moving to crypto to do legacy finance stuff vibe that I'd suspect but I hadn't confirmed before in reading their story. It's all the kind of things you'd like to know before they got all involved and intertwined with everyone's money. But no one did any research because number go up and they all got wrecked. Also some great anecdotes in there about the yacht they tried to buy. Much Wow, I believe the name was. <laughs> Couple of college buddies getting themselves some uh, dick butt NFTs and yachts. We don't bleep out the and dick butt because it's art, right? So we have to leave that in. I think that's the rule. We also saw a story in the register about how FreedomFi, a DIY 5G specialist company, was acquired by Nova Labs, the company behind Helium. I think that Helium might be my new altcoin scam slash terrible idea that I like to call out because I think it appeals to a lot of people. It's this model where you buy a Wi-Fi unit and you provide free Wi-Fi to people, but instead of paying with, you know, real money that's actually money. They pay with these helium tokens and data tokens, and it's this complex token economy. If you do the math, it'll take you 400 years to pay for your Wi-Fi unit that you bought with these made-up 
tokens. <laughs> so it's wild. They have all the signs of your typical altcoin scam, but there are these glowing articles about how this is so innovative. Their small cell, so I guess they have bigger cells that cost more, but their small cells start at a $1,500 one-time fee. They say they take less than an hour to set up. This is a real interesting one because they've come up with their own proof of consensus system, proof of... Uh, Coverage. Yes, right. Proof of coverage based on like your connectivity and your signal and the variability in other signals. That's how they'll reach consensus somehow is by deriving consensus from those things. That's interesting. Of course, there's also the whole tokenomics aspect where this thing got up to about 52 bucks at the uh, mid, you know, kind of at, I think it was November, 52 bucks in November, kind of at the peak of the uh, crypto market bull run. And now it's down 85%. It's down to where it was pretty much uh, at the beginning of 2020. 21 before the bull market really got crazy it's really crashed and well historically no coin really ever recovers from that so we'll see and there's also like sub tokens and sub coins that can only be used on the network that are used for certain types of fees and there are certain types of fees you have to pay it it goes deep quick it feels like a little bit I am way up in there. I think that a easy rule of thumb is if there's a token involved, it's very likely a scam and it's almost definitely a bad idea. And then if the company publicizes business partnerships as a sign of important adoption, it's probably a scam, probably a bad idea. And you have a company behind it. So it's also probably an unregistered security. Helium does all the altcoin stuff. At the same time, they kind of have this story about how they're doing a real thing. And I think that appeals to a lot of people who might find Bitcoin to Oh, theoretical. Right. You know, it doesn't do anything. It doesn't have What's any real use value. Case? What's the use case? It's weird because it's almost like they're returning to the real world to manufacture a use case, but it actually doesn't work or make sense. We forgot the absolute best part, I think. They get a 35% cut of like the what gets mined. They're, so they didn't pre-mine anything, which is, I think, a positive in their favor. There apparently was not a pre-distribution, but they do get a 35% cut of the hotspot infrastructure tokens that get generated. That's huge. Right. It's like, the Apple App Store, except you're going to claim it's a decentralized network. And at least Apple provides some infrastructure for the App Store. All they're doing is inflating the supply every month and giving 35% of the new... <laughs> issuance to the VC investors. Technically 5% more than what Apple charges, and most people consider Apple's rate outrageous. <laughs> I just can't even. There's actually quite a bit of, that we'll have a link in the notes if you're curious. There's quite a few cuts in there, actually. Well, we shouldn't dwell on this. It's a total joke, but I feel like highlighting these scams gives us kind of a model to evaluate them and notice the patterns of shady projects. This is also part of the reason why I don't talk a lot about, oh, this group used Bitcoin to provide water for a village in Asia or something. Because a lot of altcoins do odd little projects like that to sort of legitimize them. Richard Hart, the creator of Hex and I think Pulse, which are two horrible scams, he donated all this money to longevity research, which he's fascinated with because it seems like all of the worst people are obsessed with living forever so that they can be horrible people forever. He basically donated 
did a bunch of his pre-mine or whatever, where he was dumping his bags on retail to some charity and then uses the marketing to sort of legitimize the project and say, hey, look, we did it all for charity, so it's fine. Obviously, you can use Bitcoin and legitimate projects to do good things. At the same time, this model has been flooded with scams. And so I kind of view it as a red flag and don't care to talk about it that much because ultimately it's not so important. What's really important is the fundamental technology use case and the economics of the whole thing. I find it fascinating from a here's yet another attempt and here is the angle they're taking. That is just sort of fascinating to see these different models crop up. But for the most, it's a sideshow. It's a laugh. It doesn't feel like the makings of a potential crisis like this Ethereum stuff does. Like what we're seeing as we approach the merge scares the living daylights out of me, as my my grandma used to say. Do you mean it would scare you if you were holding Ethereum or does it scare you because it's just going to disrupt everything to the point where Bitcoin's going to be caught up in that nonsense? You got it. Not only am I concerned about market volatility that's going to come as a result of some of this stuff we're about to talk about, that's just an absolute inevitability. Volatility is absolutely, you know, it's going to affect us bag holders. But I actually just, I can't see something not having a knock-on effect of Bitcoin just in terms of PR image too. Like this is something I've been really processing the last couple of weeks as I've gotten feedback from the JB audience on our non-Bitcoin shows, right? And the clear signal for the people who don't like when we talk about sats, Bitcoin, or boosts, the clear signal is Bitcoin is crypto, all crypto is scam. I mean, it is a 98% consistency. And even people have like listened to my response have said, yeah, I hear what you're saying, Chris, but at the end of the day, this other stuff is going on and Bitcoin's wrapped up in it. If you like it or not, that's just how people perceive it. I think they're right. And so this kind of stuff that Ethereum's doing is going to affect crypto holders that don't know better. It's going to affect the public image and it's also going to affect the price. Now, what we're talking about is a chart on Twitter, which shows the major Ethereum to staking pools. And so Ethereum is migrating to a proof of stake model where if you own Ethereum, you enter a staking contract you get a share of new Ethereum that are issued, but you can't sell these staked Ethereum while they're in the staking contract. Except you can, because if you stake with a third party, they can create a derivative token like Lido Finance, which creates a staked ETH derivative called STETH. And that gives you an incentive to stake with them because you get to stake and get new issuance of Ethereum. And you also get a derivative token that you can spend just like Ethereum. So I would say, actually, the existence of third-party staking pools that give you a derivative breaks the proof-of-stake model because now staking doesn't really have a cost because I stake ETH, but I get an ETH derivative that acts like ETH. So actually, why wouldn't I stake ETH? I don't have to care about ETH to stake it. I can still sell it because I can sell the derivative. This seems to break that assumption around proof-of-stake. It also naturally centralizes the staking into big pools. Because if I don't want to join a small staking pool or stake on my own, because then the derivative that they have will be like a very small market cap, very niche derivative, because this is all money, right? So the best situation would be I would stake my ETH and then I would get a US dollar. It would basically sell immediately, but I could always buy it back or something like that. So a derivative token is kind of less good than just getting money. But if you're going to get a derivative, you want to get the most popular derivative because it has a network effect. 
So you're saying there is real financial incentives to centralize Ethereum staking? A hundred percent. And now with the OFAC sanctions of Tornado Cash, the question was raised, hey, if Coinbase or these staking pools start blacklisting transactions and complying with government censorship, are we going to use the proof of stake slashing mechanism to punish them? And Vitalik said, yeah, we should just do that. And then Brian Armstrong of Coinbase said, you know, hypothetically, if we were being censored, we would just shut down our staking operation. We, a business that lost a billion dollars this year, would shut down our profitable staking operation rather than comply with a government rule. Yeah. Well, hold on. I mean, what if the rule is you're not allowed to shut down your operation and you have to just censor? Obviously, you'd comply. It's It's a nonsense response. It's ludicrous. And we've already seen them proactively go above and beyond with this tornado cash censoring. They've gone above and beyond just to cover their hind end. And JP Morgan estimates that Coinbase will generate an annual staking revenue of $650 million after the merge. And Coinbase has nearly a 12% share of the Ethereum network staking. In fact, just the top four providers make up nearly 60%. The top four staking providers make up 60%, almost, it's 57.85% of the Ethereum staking. And so if you just crack a couple of those, you know, you're an FBI agent, you go to a couple of these, you get a couple of these guys on board, you've got a huge percentage. So the idea that then they would stop participating is ludicrous. If they did slash the Ethereum held at these institutions, you'd be slashing the Ethereum of thousands of customers. It's not like it's Coinbase's Ethereum. I mean, it is, but it's in theory being held on behalf of these customers. So you'd be slashing their funds. So you're punishing the customers. It's not going to work. And it's it would be a crisis. It would cause massive volatility. And the reason why it concerns me, it legitimately concerns me, is because it seems like an absolute inevitability. After watching what happened with Tornado Cash, it seems like an absolute inevitability that eventually some Ethereum at Coinbase is going to be involved with some Ethereum that goes to some regime that we've sanctioned. And there's more and more of them all the time. So it's just like a foregone conclusion that they will be in this situation. And this proof of stake merge puts them in this very vulnerable spot that they are not in right now at a horrible time. The timing of this could not be worse. And I think when Vitalik says, oh, yeah, yeah, we'd slash it. I don't believe him. And when Brian Armstrong says, oh, well, this is just a hypothetical, but no, we just shut it down. I don't believe him. It's 600 million this year. What's it going to be in two, three years? They could be making a billion dollars off of everybody's staking. There's no way they're going to shut that down. 100% not. They might even get sued by their shareholders if they forego. $600 million of revenue. So basically, I don't see how Ethereum fixes this problem. I think it's not building for an adversarial environment. And I think there's definitely going to be censorship on Ethereum. The question is, is that going to hurt the Ethereum value proposition? Is that going to get in the way of the financial speculation and scamming that you can do on top of Ethereum? And I think, yes, it will eventually. The whole point that all of these legacy finance scumbags like Suzu and Kyle Davies got into quote unquote crypto is that crypto allows you to do a lot of stuff that is illegal and not practical 
skeptical in traditional finance due to regulation. Well, Ethereum has not really designed itself in a way that is going to be able to resist regulation much longer. They're hoping that carve-outs for Ethereum being a commodity in this big proposal by Gillibrand and Loomis might protect them. At the same time, I think in our conversation with Crypto Mom that I released yesterday, Crypto Mom points out, she's a lawyer, that OFAC is the answer to regulating Ethereum or blockchains. Because traditional regulators, the SEC and the CFTC, they're consumer-focused to a certain extent. They protect the consumer. Whereas OFAC is punishing the consumer. And so with OFAC, you can achieve policy goals like reducing access of North Korean hackers to privacy so that they can't hack DeFi and then fund the North Korean nuclear program. And you can do that knowing that you'll hurt users, but it doesn't matter because it's OFAC. OFAC is about policy, not consumer protection. Good luck, Ethereum, but they're really closing their eyes to these problems. Yeah, I guess they've just gone too far down this path. I think it's a matter of product differentiation. At some level, the folks at Consensus are looking at this thinking to themselves, we have to have a product that differentiates itself from Bitcoin more. And the ESG stuff is going to be it. That's that's why you make all these compromises. You make all of these compromises for the energy argument. And also, to be honest, a lot of the players, like your Coinbase, even Cloudflare, many players, they want to get some of that sweet staking action. There's a lot of money for all these guys to make, and they don't have to go buy a bunch of expensive of miners and pay for power to make some money off this thing now. So there's a lot of already rich stakeholders that are really excited about this and really pushing for this because they're going to get rich. And you think about the dev team too, they've got so much Ethereum, they could be direct validators if they want. So they're going to get rich. Like this is great for these people. It's not so great for everybody else. But you know what? It makes me think that we're going to, when we're years and years down the road, unfortunately, I think we're still going to have Ethereum with us. I think this merge, unless it blows up, is going to give them real staying power. And we're going to be 10 five, 10 years down the road, it could still be around. But now what you're going to have is Bitcoin will be the truly decentralized, nobody owns it asset. And Ethereum, it's also a valuable asset, but it's owned by like these four companies. You know, these four big market players, these four quote unquote banks, they're really, you know, BlackRock, they're really the ones that own it. But for a lot of mainstream investors, that's fine. You know what? Four different banks, that's pretty decentralized as far as they're concerned. They're players that are regulated. They know who they are. They know the names. They probably even have some buddies at those institutions. They're good with it, right? The Wall Street folks are going to be good with it. But for the world that needs a safe haven from their state-destroyed currency, they're going to want something truly decentralized, not owned by a U.S. company. And that's going to be a huge differentiator between Bitcoin and Ethereum going forward. I'm just thinking about what you said. I think at a certain point, if you don't follow through on your promises, people lose interest. Ethereum's all about doing things to keep people interested. Maybe they have to do proof of stake because they need to keep people interested and that's become this kind of narrative that differentiates Ethereum from Bitcoin. I don't know. I'm glad they're going to try it out, uh, mainly because I've never met someone who could articulate a smart case for Ethereum. And that includes Arthur Hayes. I think Arthur is blinded by his portfolio there. I'm happy to victim blame what happens to Ethereum because I think that everyone who got into that, they had the option to go to Bitcoin and they chose stupid arguments instead of good arguments, in my opinion. The other positive I think it's having is I think it's giving a lot of the Bitcoin community more conviction about proof of work 
and about really just doubling down on what makes Bitcoin great, decentralized and secure. And I think it's just helped us re-clarify those priorities in the Bitcoin community by watching this boondoggle happen. And I note that there are a lot of Bitcoin commentators in the social space that are trying to reach out to different Ethereum developers and community members and trying to point some of this stuff out to them and be like, are you guys not concerned about this? These are major red flags. Like the Bitcoiners are seeing it. So there's going to be a lot of schadenfreude <laughs> when these things start to fall apart in, you know, who knows how long. And then, of course, I think us Bitcoiners are going to have to start placing uh, a few sats on bets around when the uh, proof of stake funds will actually get unlocked how long that's going to take because nobody knows. And it's remarkable when you think about this thing as a store of value, the fact that you could lock funds up and it's for an indeterminate amount of time based on a software project that has failed to deliver on time every single time. It's just hilarious that all the staking's locked up. They're six years behind on proof of stake. Yes. And still people were locking up their funds into these beacon chain <laughs> staking contracts and posting online about how, you know, they're so glad they did that because now they don't have to worry or whatever and i'm like uh-huh you know you've basically taken off the parachute and thrown it out of the open plane door <laughs> you know you're going down <laughs> right and then they're staked they're staked eth pegs as well and it's like oh well maybe it's not so great now now i've got DPEG staked ETH, and i got real ETH locked up i mean that bit celsius right that's part of what brought celsius down it's also what brought down 3ac partially so it's not been great it really could have been wrapped up and there's no guarantee it's going to be bug free once it's deployed so the whole promise right now is the ETH that is staked will become unlocked after the next big merge where you're going to see like, I don't know, sharding or something. Who knows? Please, Chris, this is a family friendly podcast. I know. Sorry. I don't want to hear any more talk of it, sharding. It's, it's, it is gross. But the reality is after this merge, there's going to be bugs and they're going to be working on getting this right. And they're going to be focused on that maybe for years before they get to the next big merge. And you can't go by what they promise because the reality is this is a ginormous worldwide software project and they're going to ship 1.0 of this. I know it's been in beta for years, but they're going to ship 1.0 of this and then they're going to need to buy bug fix for a while. So they're not going to be getting to that next merge for quite some time. So there is really no idea when you're going to get your staked ETH back. And I just can't believe people are okay with that. Like, it just feels like that would never fly with Bitcoin. This episode of the Bitcoin Dad Pod is brought to you by the self-hosted show from Jupiter Broadcasting. The self-hosted show is hosted by two handsome guys with great voices and amazing hair and lots and lots of computers at home. You can listen to the self-hosted show if you're interested in setting up Raspberry Pis and low-powered servers to do home automation, run your own media server, maybe host your own files and backup data. Or it can be a way to learn about and start practicing professional IT tools like Ansible or Terraform. There's so much there at the self-hosted show. You can check it out in any podcast app, self-hosted show, or on selfhosted.show on the interwebs. Check it out. I said check it out like five times. Do All it. Right. Recently been on a run of testing different temperature and humidity sensors, and I think I have found the perfect one. I'll be talking about it on the show. Oh, you've been talking about that for six years, almost as long as the Ethereum <laughs> uh, proof of stake merge. <laughs> but um bum which brings us to Bitcoin education. And we have a fantastic article with pictures by Gloria Chow, our newest Bitcoin core maintainer. This article is titled Map of the Bitcoin Network. And I have to say, I learned something from one of the infographics, which is all nodes are not created equal. She breaks it out into full nodes, archive nodes, and mining nodes. And then, um, what was it? Uh, there was a, th I thought there was an, oh, pruning nodes, I think is another one I think she listed. And light clients. 
Yeah, okay. Light planes as well. I wasn't sure if she considered that a node. But yeah, she's okay. She says that's a generic term for a node that doesn't keep the full state necessary for full validation, a light client. It's interesting because I actually learned more about the distinctions between types of nodes from the Ethereum debate because Ethereum has been very keen to obfuscate the difference between different node types to so that they could claim that they had a decentralized network because anyone could run a node on a laptop. But actually, you could only run a pruned node on a laptop, I believe. Whereas a archive node, which is a node that not only validates new blocks, but also keeps a history of the entire chain. This is something that you can only run in a data center on Ethereum. Whereas on Bitcoin, you can run a full archival node on a single board computer or an old ThinkPad laptop. That's impressive engineering, in my opinion. And intentional. Necessary really for the adoption that you want to see in the Bitcoin network. Right. Because full nodes, full archival nodes that have the whole history of the Bitcoin blockchain, this is what provides the anti-fragility of the Bitcoin network. Because archival nodes can resurrect the entire network if every other node is taken offline. Whereas a pruned node, it can recognize if you're on the right Bitcoin chain, it can recognize valid and invalid transactions, but it can't resurrect the whole network or help new nodes bootstrap the history. So pruned nodes have a place, maybe on a mobile device, if you're doing some sort of lightning type wallet on a phone or something. But those archival nodes, they're what actually provide the decentralized robustness of the Bitcoin network. And of course, there's drawings to go along in this article that make kind of, I don't know, the complete picture from wallet to node, I suppose. I think that this is an interesting read, no matter what your Bitcoin level, because if you're a beginner, there might be some stuff here that you kind of skim through and it might not fully sink in. At the same time, there are some really key concepts about understanding nodes and decentralized networks. So if you read this article, you'll definitely sound smarter and have a shot at explaining things to your no-coiner friends. And for someone who's been in the space for a long time, it's really satisfying to read a simple article written about someone who really knows their stuff. You always learn something new when an expert distills their knowledge for a general audience and adds some of that subtlety into a digestible form. I would also kind of recommend maybe checking out the talk from the Bitcoin 2022 conference. There's an open source stage and I think it might have been lightning. can't remember the talk, but uh, she was up there with a panel and it's the whole the whole open source stage stuff was really fascinating. But uh, her grasp on lightning is really strong, too. So I, I felt like I learned a few things just watching that. It's on their YouTube channel. Gloria focuses on the mempool, which is the pool of pending transactions held by every node. And I recall in that talk, she said anyone in the audience who runs a customer custom mempool with a custom size that's larger than the standard 300 megabyte mempool size. Can you just come up and explain why you do that? And I wasn't there. I was listening remotely, so I couldn't raise my hand. And I wanted to tell her, because Gloria, I want to preserve those little one sat per byte transactions when they get priced out. I don't want them to get forgotten. (laughs) Hey, that could be the difference between a boost making it or not. (laughs) Not really, actually. But I like your sentiment nonetheless. Which brings us to feedback and boosts. Remember, you can get in touch with the show, BitcoinDadPod at ProtonMail.com or at BitcoinDadPod on Twitter or boost in with a podcasting 2.0 app. 
links in the show notes. Now, I know we have a rule on the show that if you want to get your boost read, it needs to be around a thousand sats or more, but we do read all of them and want to pull a few forward every now and then. Just 21 sats, but it came from Canton Crypto, and it was sent in five days ago. He was listening to All Roads Lead to Bitcoin, and it's just simply hello from Indonesia. How great is that? So cool. Hello back to Indonesia. Send in some Indonesia-specific Bitcoin news so we know what's going on there. Also, uh, TrueGrits is going through the back catalog with the uh, interview with Kamal from Galoy, a thousand sats, just saying he's falling behind, but he's catching up and boosting along the way. Welcome back, TrueGrits. Petar sent in a mega boost of 10,000 sats listening to Insiders Always Dump with the message, proving Fiat Jeff wrong, one boost at a time, peace sign. Heck yeah. Because Fiat Jeff was questioning if podcasting 2.0 works. I think we might be proving him wrong a little there. One boost at a time. Mr. Quackers wrote in for the same episode, appropriately a row of ducks, 2,222 sats. Trust me, I know. You guys might have talked about it on an episode I missed, but I am so confused about how fees work or what a V-byte is or how Bitcoin has changed since 2010. Maybe in a future boost, I will talk about how I bought Bitcoin early and then reformatted my computer, forgetting about it. No, Mr. Quackers. I would kind of like to hear that story, especially the moment you realized. (laughs) I'd like to hear that. We all have that pain, Mr. Quackers. It's just part of the baggage of being an early adopter. And thank you so much for those suggestions for content. I guess next week we're going to have to talk about what a V-byte is and how fees work, because that's actually pretty fundamental. And it's not exactly simple. Mr. Quackers also boosts in with the same row of ducks. If you play Wordle before you boost, it's very easy to double boost. Okay. Double boost. Turn off that Wordle before you boost. Or turn it on. Knowledge for power to free boosts in again with a row of ducks, 2,222 sats. I'm very selective with any sats I part with, but for the fact that you are willing to return accidental boosts, I happily give you my ducks. You two do an amazing job. Thank you so much. (laughs) I love the row of ducks. Anyone remember if you accidentally double boost or you boost in and then you regret it, we do do refunds. So even though Bitcoin is final payment system, the Bitcoin dad pod will always refund you if you uh, have second thoughts. The baller duck boost is 22,222 sats. I've decided that's a row of McDucks, you know, like Scrooge McDuck. I mean, that would be quite a comment. You'd, you'd want to say something important, I guess. Or YOLO it. Ibuki boosts in with a thousand sats. Being sanctions are counterproductive. What do you think are better alternatives? Hey, that's a great question. You know, I think that a better alternative to economic violence against countries you don't like are somehow outcompeting them in a positive way. For instance, I think there's this narrative that the US and China are locked in a sort of old superpower, rising superpower competition. I think that's a flawed narrative. But China is a repressive society that doesn't value human rights, freedom, or frankly, creativity. I think that the flex is to lean into personal freedom, creativity, freedom of expression, and openness, and basically outcompete in that way. So I think that there are positive forms of political competition. We got a thousand stats from Bitcoin Occultist. He says, regarding the Fed's characterization of Bitcoiners as a quasi-religious cult, I have to say, I kind of get it. I have, quote, Bitcoin Magazine, end quote, in my RSS feed, and I probably skip two to three of the articles uh, out of four articles because some of them are just ridiculous with, quote, Bitcoin is 
mathematically perfect with patterns of the universe. That's an actual headline from last week. That's a good point. And I think we've raised some of the same criticisms of outlets like Bitcoin Magazine. I just don't think there's enough good Bitcoin thought to have a daily updating website about Bitcoin, frankly. We run into this sort of limit on good information on this show. And I'm not saying we get every good story and good paper. There's a lot out there, obviously, that we don't cover or notice or make it in or it gets in later. But this is still very early. It's not like the world is running on Bitcoin and therefore to talk about Bitcoin is to talk about anything in the world. And so I think to keep their feed full, they have to let in fluff pieces that are, you know, frankly, a little crazy. Yeah, especially in a bear market. There's not a lot of new things going on. Sometimes, you know, in a bull market, things are really popping off. You got company announcements, acquisitions, new projects, things like that. But yeah, the really deep stuff, that's rare. Comes out like once a week. Yukon Cornelius boosted in with 4,500 sats. Listening while mowing the lawn. Seems like a new episode always comes out when it's time for me to do yard work. I appreciate the length and the variety of topics. While mowing the lawn, that's great. I bet he has good headphones. Crypto Kyle snuck in under the limit with a really interesting point. I just mentally associate ETH with BTC what if testing environment, i.e. let's make all the mistakes and bad decisions here so Bitcoin can see the results of those bad decisions. I think I've heard that before. The idea that altcoins are a regulatory buffer around Bitcoin because they're so much easier to regulate and disrupt that it makes sense to go after them first. There's probably something there, although I would imagine that is probably fading as it seems that the regulators are very clearly understanding there's Ethereum and there's Bitcoin and there's a difference there. I think that is probably changing, but there's something there. I was kind of getting that sentiment when I said that watching this proof of stake transition and merger has really kind of re-cemented some core beliefs in the Bitcoin community. I think you have the other end of this too, which is Monero, or now also in Litecoin. We see some people trying out things, maybe one day we want to incorporate, but it is kind of nice that Bitcoin isn't the first place it's tried because if something is going to be a stable, reliable store of value, it shouldn't be experimenting with shenanigans like this. And so perhaps it is better it's played out in other places. And you see a bit of that traditionally in open source development in other areas too, in web servers and in databases, Linux distributions. You kind of see this stuff happen as well. Projects split into more bleeding edge, more risky, and then more stable projects. I think I agree with that. I guess I'm sort of believed that Vitalik went to Ethereum. Was Vitalik one of the founding members of Bitcoin Magazine? I know he used to write for Bitcoin Magazine. Yeah, I definitely know he wrote. I know. I mean, back then, he probably just kind of was just because of how casual it was back then. And he got frustrated with Bitcoin development culture because he had been agitating for changes, which I think probably would have been considered radical at that time. And so he went to Ethereum. And I think that worked out pretty well for him. I guess that's just the natural progression. People split into communities and projects that they think will bring them value, maybe. Maybe that's a positive way to look at that. Yeah, that's kind of how we got Cordana too, right? Charles started as an Ethereum guy and wanted to take things in a certain direction. There was disagreements, so he pissed off and started Cordana. I feel like I've seen pictures of Charles Hodgkinson wearing all Gucci clothing, and I just can't get that out of my head, like his beard and like going full Gucci. And so that's just the only thing I think about when I think of Cardano. He'd like you to think of the philosopher. 
philosopher. I think he likes to come across as a technology philosopher. Well, then shouldn't he be wearing a sheet like Socrates as opposed to a Gucci bling bling outfit that the most tasteless of the nouveau riche who got rich on pumping an ICO would wear? I'd like to see maybe, you know, grow the hair out, what he's got left of it, grow that out, get a whole look going. That's what I'd like to see. Maybe go a little medieval looking. I think that'd be a great look for Charles. Ouch. The host of the office hours dot hair podcast <laughs> savaging coiners. Right, I shouldn't male pattern baldness that is brutal wow boost in and tell me how awful I am go get a new podcast app at newpodcastapps.com we like fountain pod versus incredible it's cross-platform web player and if you're on iOS and you need that car play right now castomatic's probably your best bet all of them support boost this has been the Bitcoin dad pod recorded on Friday August 19th 2022 the podcast that is not afraid to go ad hominem I'm your Bitcoin dad, and I'm here as always with... It's me. It's Chris. Bye, everybody. Thanks for joining us. See you next time.